Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. I'm joined by Caroline Ma to shine a light on lighthouse living, where we delve into stories of what it was like to live in a lighthouse. Welcome back, Caro. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm happy to be here. What are your favourite mm-hmm. moments from childhood, Caro? Some of your most distinct memories? Yeah, well, as an only child, um, I also lived with my mum, who was a single mother. And so I was around other kids a lot in like after school care settings. And I just loved sport. Like all of my childhood memories are mainly just about sport. Yeah. And I just remember being at after school care and that's where I got hit in the face by a cricket bat. That's where I got run over by a bike over my face. That's where I got, you know, learned how to kick a football. And I remember my shoes being too big because my mum would always buy shoes that were too big because I was an only child and I had to have them last for as long as possible and just kicking footballs and watching my shoe fly off. And it was just a joyful time, even though I got injured a lot. I was bleeding constantly, scabby, wound, wounded, just, you know, a competitive child as I am a competitive adult now and I just love sports. So that's sort of my overarching memories of my childhood is just playing with other kids. And, yeah, I, I, find, I think of those very fondly. It's so interesting because I think children just have this universal common interest really in the memories they retain and the interests they have. And it really does centre around being outside, playing, not only playing but playing with Mm-hmm. other kids I have probably quite similar memories from my childhood as yours you know I remember falling off my bike and getting my first scab on my knee you know playing with the kids in the street um and similarly I also had you know oversized clothing I had to grow into um, by order of mother as well it's very interesting because those our childhood experiences in the city are actually quite similar you know the childhood experiences that people lighthouse kids had at these light stations and their memories of being outside and playing and I think they just got more of it than we did yeah yeah I agree I also think that maybe we and not to be all back in my day (laughs) I just feel like not having electronics as readily available to us also allowed that experience more because there was nothing else to do you couldn't do anything and your parents didn't really let you you know watch tv let alone there probably wasn't even things on tv that you wanted to watch like cartoons only go for so long so I think that's partly my experience as well it's just like there was nothing to do so I just go outside and now there's just like so many distractions and things happening all the time not not the kids don't like playing anymore but yeah I think that is you know universal childhood experience of just wanting to like hang out with other kids I think that's a super good point there because in as much as I'm idolising, you know, the lighthouse kid experience of being on this isolated island or an isolated lighthouse free from technology, actually quite similar to the childhood we had because social media wasn't a thing. I don't think Facebook or even smartphones were a thing until I was well into ending high school at that time or even the start of uni. And the impact that has on the types of memories in our interaction and the change even in our lifetime is huge. I just wonder if I wonder if kids these days will get that kind of experience or value it as much as we did perhaps. Yeah, I agree. It's a bit grim to think about, but it's just 
it's the way the life life in the world is going. I think everyone's moving to the metaverse by the sounds of it. <laughs> So remember in the previous episode, Mike Jenna mentioned the Lighthouse Kids. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I found one. And in today's episode, we are heading north to sunny Queensland. My name is Peter Braid. Um, I live in Townsville in North Queensland, so we're kind of in the middle of the yeah, middle of the state when it comes to lighthouses. Um, I'm the Vice President of Lighthouses of Australia. And I, um, I also run the Facebook page for Lighthouses of Australia and, and friends and families of Australian Lighthouse Keepers, as well as the Cape Cleveland one. So Peter Braid is a Lighthouse Kid turned Lighthouses of Australia Vice President and Queensland Representative. We'll hear about how he did school on remote islands and the many illustrious visitors he encountered, including Dick Smith. Before we go there, Karen, what is Queensland famous for? Queensland, mm, I guess there's the coast, so maybe beaches. Obviously, there's the Great Barrier Reef. There's a lot of sunshine there. I think of the Gold Coast, Whitsundays, Cairns, that sort of thing. Maybe like the big dinosaur, big watermelon, big moa, big marlin. Ah, all the classics. However, what's not on your list and potentially should be? I assume that you're going to mention lighthouses. Correct. Lighthouses. Surprisingly a famous uh, characteristic of the Queensland coastline. Let's take a listen to my interview with Peter Braid. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm well, Amanda. Yourself? Well, thank you. Sounds like you've had a busy week. Uh, it's always a busy week these days. The joys of owning your own business. Oh, yes. Never stops. You can't quite clock in and clock out as an employee, can you? Nah. Nah, unfortunately. Nah. Have three, so it keeps me on the hop. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Well done. Good on you. And thank you so much, thank then, you. for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Nah, it's all good. All good. Anything to help out with lighthouses, that's for sure. It's great to hear. I'm incredibly excited to interview you this morning because you're one of the few people who I think have an actual lived experience to share in stories from living at lighthouses. Um, would you able to describe, you know, how you were able to live at so many lighthouses and which ones were your favourite? Yep. We come from Melbourne originally. My parents were Melbourne-born and bred and in the early 70s they decided to, I suppose, live the Australian dream and pack up in a caravan and um, it was myself and my oldest sister, and we started heading up the Queens, up the coast to Queensland. We got as far as Gladstone, and Mum's sister was, and my auntie was um, at Cape Capricorn at the time with her family. So we went out for a holiday, and while we were out there, the um, the big boss of um, back then the Department of Transport, which is AMSA now, they uh, he come through and said to Dad, "I've got a relief keeper's job out at North Reef." for six weeks would you be interested and that was the whole idea of our trip was to go somewhere find somewhere get a bit of work and then save a bit more money up and and move on so he was out there he took the job he was out there for about six weeks and while he was out there um the same guy come past again in the ship and said we've got a um a lighthouse keeper's position at pine island would you be interested so dad said yep let's do it we'll do it for 12 months and then you know continue on 
well, it was almost 25 years later that mum and dad finally remained London and they uh, they finished up. So that's how um, how we got in. No, yeah, no experience, no background, no sort of relationship to the ocean or marine or anything coming from Melbourne um, and just travelling around and just happened to be in the right spot at the right time. Um, so how many lighthouses did your family end up living at over your 25 years? Um, so all up there was eight. So Dad lived at North Reef where he did the six weeks out there and that was a man-only station. So he moved out there um, for, the, for that period of time. And then um, the rest of us, Mum and Dad lived on seven and I lived on six of those and spent time with them at, um, on, visiting on holidays and stuff at the, seven, at the other one. So we started at... Um, at Pine Islet, which is off Mackay, a pretty rugged and remote island that isn't the most um, kid-friendly place, I suppose you could say, to live on. Uh, it was there was no nice beaches and places to go swim. It was just two volcanic rocks in the middle of nowhere. Um, we moved from there to Sandy Cape, which was on Fraser Island, which is totally different. You know, amazing beaches, amazing water. Um, you know, the largest sand island in the world. From there, we went to Lady Elliot, uh, which is the southernmost tip of the Great Barrier Reef. So, again, great beaches, you know, beautiful water, reef, you know, surrounded by um, reefs and, and coral. It was a great, it was a beautiful place to live. Went to Cape Capricorn on Curtis Island off Gladstone. Uh, that was my favourite. We spent four years there, and um, that was my favourite. Apart from the hill, it was about 360 feet high, uh, 360 metres high, I think. It was, yeah, the, the hill was a bit of a killer getting up and down, but it was a great place to live. So much to do there. Didn't matter what the weather was doing or the wind was doing, you could always find somewhere nice to get out of it. Great beaches, great fishing. From there, we went to Booby Island in the Torres Straits. So Booby Island is the, the last bit of land in the Gulf when you go from Torres Straits over to um, towards the Northern Territory, and it marks the entrance of the shipping channel um, through the Torres Straits for ships coming from... Asia and that area coming through that area. Then mum and dad moved to um, Cape Cleveland off Townsville and that's where I um, moved to Townsville then and moved to the mainland with my older sister. And then from there we went down, they went down to Double Island Point, um, just near Rainbow Beach, top end of Noosa, and they spent five years there and I actually worked there as a relief keeper for about um, three to four months as well. And then they were made redundant at the end of that one um, in the mid-90s. Sounds like you've lived quite a unique and exciting childhood. I think most people are interested in what was it actually like on a daily basis as a child living in a lighthouse? You know, did you eat the same things we did? Did you have the same experiences, you know, schooling that we did? Can you talk a bit about that? Yep. So I did all my schooling by correspondence. So I started school, um, I, I think I, I did grade one. I started grade one when I was at Gladstone when Dad was at um, North Reef. But then from then right through to grade 10, I did all my schooling by correspondence, by book. The longest I spent on um, at school on the mainland was four weeks one year. We were on holidays for a period of time. I think we were about six weeks. So I went to school on the mainland for, um, <laughs> for about four weeks. And that was a bit of a culture shock. Some subjects were really easy. Some were hard. Primary school, you only had to spend three hours a day. So if the weather was good and you wanted to go fishing, I'd quite often go fishing. And do my school on the weekend when the weather was 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 not as good. Some subjects like English I struggled with, and you know you might spend all day on. 
some days I could get, and, and we get our schoolwork a month at a time. So they'd send out a month's worth of school. Then we'd send that back at the end and we'd have the next month ready to go. And then that would get marked and come back by, by mail. When I went to the mainland, what we found, the, the speed things like doing your times table or spelling, we struggled with. But what, and, and even to this day, what we were really good was at was research because you had nothing. You, you know, it was encyclopedias. There was no internet. There was nothing like that. So you had to read a lot. You had to do a lot of research to find out the information you needed. So I find I'm very good at that side, but you give me a times table to do or something like that, and I, I struggle. I did through to grade 10. I did my junior exam on BB Island and the Torres Straits in the uh, the relief keepers' quarters, and I had the um, the lighthouse keeper's wife was an ex-school teacher, so she supervised me. I was a little bit complacent about our lifestyle, about how we grew up, because to us it was just – that was just the way it was. And, you know, you talk to some people and they go, I must have been going, oh, yeah, it was right. It was, yeah, it was. And, and it's not until you, you know, chat to people like yourself or, um, you know, I do a, a bit up here with um, with Cape Cleveland and um, we're doing some stuff with one of the, the um, ferry companies with tours and that you start talking to people that you do kind of then start to realise how different and, and um, our lifestyle was, you know, to, to everyone and, and put in a bit more perspective, I suppose. I think people are almost jealous of the lifestyle and life you were able to lead at such an early age because I think for most of us it's freedom. It's this freedom of lifestyle, of being of being in tune with nature, which I think a lot of people miss by being on the mainland yeah. and living in cities. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. The you know, I said you weren't tied down to schedules, you know. It, it kind of become a bit of a running joke with um the big the bosses from the Department of Transport. If they rang in and mum answered the phone on the on the stations we had um, had um, phones on, they'd say, "Oh, is, um, is 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 Gordon there, or is the weather good and he's off fishing?" Because it was it got to the stage where you'd quite often the guys would do their work on the weekend because the weather report was looking good during the week, and and the bosses accepted that because what else are you can do you can't you if you don't have that bit of freedom and the ability to change you do go you could go a little bit stir crazy and and. There, there has been people do that and go, but they're crazy on the lights. And to be honest, we didn't do a lot on the um, on the science side. Science was a bit hard on correspondence, so we we kept a more basic subject. So we didn't really get too involved in high school on the, on some of those experiments, I suppose. That, um, but I imagine that, you yeah. would have developed your own understanding of natural science. You would have a much more in depth knowledge of biology and yeah, the world and, around you. And one of the things you always used to do. You still see it these days. You know, um, the news agents has those, you know, fortnightly magazines you can get on, you know, um, might be on building a plane or history or something like that. Well, we used to get a lot that were on nature or animals or insects. So you'd quite often get those and, and bring those in and get them in each fortnight. Um, so there was one series I remember that was more based around Australian animals and they had actual images of the beachworms I used to catch and things like that. So you always used to be looking for stuff like that to get in and, and you'd be off, yeah, just looking for things like that, I suppose, you know, um, turning rocks over, seeing what was under the rocks when you're on the reef or, you know, collecting shells or fishing was a huge part for me. I, you know, I was always working on my fishing and, and trying to, you know, out do whatever my personal best I suppose you could say each time I was out the worming things like that making money on that side you know we used to um have be into archery um you know we'd have our bows set up we'd have little target ranges set up down the bottom and, and go off and practice all that 
people say, you know, even now you get, uh, you know, they're bored or some of like that. We never did. We always found something to stop us from being bored. There's always something to do. There was no real excuse not to, to, to be bored. You, know, you always had something. For the families, I suppose just like any day, really, you get up, have breakfast, except for some of us, you know, you look at Cape Capricorn, um, our view is a little bit different. We were sitting there at the kitchen table looking down views that people would pay millions of dollars to, to look at, you know, looking down, you know, mile-long beaches. From the, the hill in our kitchen at Cape Capricorn, you could actually see the power station um, chimneys at Gladstone on a clear day. So you could see, you know, because it's so high up, the, the view was awesome. It was just amazing. Generally, school would kick off at nine. If we're doing primary school, it was only three hours a day. Um, mum was our teacher and, and my mum, you know, she had to learn with us along the way because in those days, a lot of people didn't even get to grade 10, you know, um, coming up from Melbourne and places like that. So mum and dad both didn't actually have juniors, didn't pass their junior certificate. So dad was an apprentice, dad was a, um, a spray painter and, and mum had um, just done a bit of part-time work here and there. So you do your school, you know, in that time while you're doing something, mum might, you know, make a couple of loaves of bread or put a cake on. Then the guys, you know, daddy come in for morning tea or generally morning tea was a group thing. You know, you'd, you'd all the, the keepers would get together and have morning tea and then lunch, you'd go off and have your own lunch and then go back. Afternoons, because of primary school, well, us kids could do whatever we like. So we'd be off fishing, we'd be off hunting, we'd be off, you know, just walking the beach or uh, hobbies were a big thing. Reading, I used to make, um, my main hobby was making model planes and things like that. Did a lot of reading. TV on some stations in those days was almost non-existent. Lady Elliot, you'd have to get out every afternoon and actually the, move the antenna and to retune the reception all the time because it, it just was that poor reception. So you'd be out there every afternoon adjusting to get enough TV. When we lived at Bebel and Torres Strait, we only had the ABC. That was the only TV station we had. So overnight, we'd quite often have radios and um, I had a radio in my room that could actually pick up some of the, overnight, you'd actually faintly hear radio channels in Sydney or Brisbane. So you'd sit there listening to them and and read or, or you know, do your hobbies, make models, um, whatever you kind of were into on the, on the time. And that really continued. The food side depends on the weather. We used to have our stores runs every fortnight. And that was either by boat or by plane, depends where you lived. So Pine Island was by boat. Um, and that was a fairly long journey. That was a, um, quite a few hours because it was about 70-odd miles off the coast. You ate a lot of fresh food the first couple of days and then everything was frozen after that or, or refrigerated. Mum or dad would make bread every couple of days and you'd always have fresh bread. But everything else was yeah, powdered or tinned or frozen. Pretty much everything had to you know, last in the in the in the freezer for the the fortnight. And if you forgot something, if you forgot to order something, well, that was too bad. You you just didn't get it until next time you ordered it. It's kind of like the Woolworths home delivery these days. You know, you'd place your order over the phone or over the radio, or you'd mail it in on the ship that you know on the boat that, that week. And then hopefully they got the order right. And sometimes you know we'd forget something. Sometimes they'd pack the wrong thing or they'd forget something. And some of the lights we had um, we had goats on. And they were actually put on the islands originally for a food source. So you'd have to take the odd goat and, and have that as, as fresh meat. Generally, though, it was, it was either powdered or tinned or stuff you could bake. So, you know, lots of cakes. Did you have any pets other yeah. than the goats or other than food sources? Um, yeah, we did. I had, uh, we had a, um, when we got to Sandy Cape, we got a, um, a little blue cattle dog cross dingo pup that was actually born on the island. 
Sandy, her name was, which was pretty appropriate for, you know, living at Sandy Cape. She lived with us. She um, three lights. And unfortunately, you know, in those days, things like heartworm and all that, no one had the treatment for those. So we lost her at um, Cape Capricorn. We quite have, often have budgies or, or canaries, you know, birds. We'd have chooks for um, every lighthouse had chooks on it for eggs. Generally, mainly just dogs more than anything. More, you know, not just as a pet, but also, I suppose, you know, a bit of a guard dog, you know, a bit of a, you know, let you know when snakes were around and things like that. So it was a, a bit of everything. No one really was, had cats or anything like that. But. Oh, yeah, why no cats? Other people have asking, have been asking, you know, did you have seals as pets or seagulls as pets? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we did. Well, actually, we had a, um, a booby bird, so a brown gannet. When we lived at Booby Island in the Torres Straits, one of the um, the guys bought one out that had been injured from Thursday Island and left it with us. And we had the booby bird there for a couple of months until he was strong enough to fly off and it was quite funny. He he was okay with the girls, but didn't like the guys. And he'd he'd, he'd chase all the guys around the station, but the girls were fine. He, he was okay with them. And he was there for a couple of months. Then one day he just flew off and uh, was never seen again. Um, Gone on to greener pastures, really, baby. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm not sure he got sick of living on a rock with not much else on it because Booby Island was pretty rugged and pretty barren. So there wasn't there wasn't much there for him. But apart from that, not really a lot in the way of animals. No. No. In the early days, they had horses, um, but that was before our time. Speaking of, you know, Booby flying off because he was, you know, on a barren rock for so long, were there ever any moments that you wished you'd lived on the mainland or did you actually have quite a wholesome and um, enjoyable experience living at a lighthouse? I suppose for us, we, I hated going to the mainland. So, Every year you had um, a certain amount of time off the station, so you'd have to you'd have four to six weeks holidays, and you weren't allowed to stay at the station because um, apart from Booby Island, which had a relief keeper's cottage, um, everyone else, the relief keeper that came out stayed in your house. So you had to make a bedroom ready for him, the kitchen and the lounge room, and, and so you had to leave the lights. And I hated going to the mainland because you know, I couldn't go off and go fishing and go walking and uh, just do what I was so used to doing. I um, yeah, didn't really, didn't really enjoy. It. You know, you, there was times where you had, you, know, you definitely enjoyed going to see the city and, and the sites. But yeah, I, I'd much prefer to be living on the on the island, Fraser Island. We'd more often go spend our holidays somewhere camping instead of actually going to the mainland. We just yeah, didn't enjoy it at all. And I and I still miss those days. There's quite a few days now where you're sitting at work and. Yeah, you know, whether it's um, in previous jobs or now, and go, geez, I wish I was actually back out being living on the lighthouses. And it, it did, it did get. Lo- I wouldn't say lonely because there was always people. There was always something going on. The, there was a, from guys coming through, fishermen you knew, guys doing work. There was always not too long a break between people. There was a couple of times Fraser Island. We um, we went three months. So if you look at Fraser Island now, you know it's amount of people that are up there there's tourists all over the place we actually went three months without seeing another car at the top of fraser island after a cyclone so they couldn't get through no one could drive through and we happened to be down the beach one day and all of a sudden this cars come through and they didn't know there was any didn't think there was anyone else up because they were the first people that come through and um and pulled up and they're still friends with with our family to this day and mum and dad still catch up with them um, we've stayed lived with them quite a stayed with them quite a few times on holidays 
we um, we're, when we were on Booby Island at Torres Straits, we were there one day and we heard this helicopter. And normally the helicopter coming out there was someone coming to do work. And there was no one, no one planned. So we've gone outside, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, gone outside and the helicopter's circling and seen us waving. So we had a helipad there, so he's landed. And it was Dick Smith. He was um, he was flying around Australia in his helicopter doing one of his one of his trips that he did. And he was told there was no one out there. So he was pretty surprised to see people waving to him. So he'd come and had morning tea with us and then continued on on his trip around around Australia. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was, yeah, he was, um, he had a great chat. He, you know, um, it was really, really excited to hear about what we did and, and, um, and how we lived. And yeah, it was, it was short, but, uh, yeah, very good visit. There's actually a photo of us on one of the websites, um, with him, um, getting back or about to get back in the helicopter. Um, yeah, we were at, um, Cape Capricorn and Sir J.B. Alke-Peterson come for a visit. And landed on a plane down the bottom, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't walk up the hills. So we phoned up. Well, you're not coming up to visit us. We're not going to go down. But you quite often have politicians coming out for a visit. You know, doing a bit of, a uh, bit of, I suppose, promotion and chest beating. You'd have um, people sailing around the world on their yachts would pull up and just want to come ashore for a while. The night I did my junior exam, the night before I did my junior exam at BV Island. We actually had the um, whole crew of a Navy patrol boat, apart from the duty watch, come ashore for a barbecue. So they they pulled up that day, said, "Oh, we've got um, a two days wreck leave. We just pull up somewhere and find somewhere nice, and we yeah you know, we go ashore." So can we use your barbecue and and cook? And said, "We'll bring all the food and 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 the beers. Can we use your barbecue?" So they come ashore and cook for us and. The old the skipper at the time uh, maybe in, indulged in a few too many drinks. They had to almost pour him into the rubber ducky to get him back on board. But yeah, they were there for hours. So there was there was always something happening. There was times when you know it was too windy. It was um, there's you had cyclones through where you didn't see people. But generally, there was always something happening or someone going past. You know, yachts running aground in cyclones. Lady Elliot had the tourist resort, so there was always tourists over there. You could go and have a chat with. We quite often um, used to put a barbecue on. They'd, in those days, they'd come out for like four, or three or four days at a time, and we'd put a barbecue on for them and get them over, and and then tell them all the horror stories about cone shells and sharks and and ghosts and all that sort of stuff. And they'd be um, making a little bit more cautious going into the water uh, for the rest of their trip. <laughs> You're certainly uh, busting the myth about. Living on a lighthouse is a lonely experience. Seems like you've had quite a few illustrious and interesting, almost neighbours yeah. roll by. But what 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 are your most memorable, funniest, happiest memories from living at lighthouses? I don't know. That's a bit of a hard one, I suppose, because because of um, we never we didn't know any different. The life out there to us was just the way it was. You know, there wasn't. And I suppose it's it's. It's similar for people on the mainland where they don't think about um, too much like that because it's just the way you were brought up and and everyday life. So for me to see something happen, it wasn't really out of the ordinary. The, the most memorable, I suppose, things, you know, and I was being the adventurous one and doing what I did, um, I was kind of the one that always had something happen. So at, at um, Pine Islet, um, which I said before was the two you know, rocks in the middle of nowhere, I um I was helping Dad launch the boat and I slipped down the stairs and broke my arm, and it took 24 hours for me to get to hospital to get that fixed or get it looked at. In those days, there was no phones, so Pine Islet um, and a couple of the other lights had no phones in those days. It was all radios, 
and they did a three-hour um, schedule report in with um, the main station, and that was kind of where your contact with everyone was. We'd just finished a three o'clock sked, so it was 15 minutes after, so there was no way of contacting anyone. They changed it soon after where they had emergency radios that would actually send out a signal to someone, so if there was an emergency, you could contact them. But I had to wait till 6 o'clock before they actually could get in touch with anyone. When I got to the mainland, it was 24 hours before I got to the hospital to get it looked at. They all had uh, what they call flying doctor's first aid kits. So they all had big first aid kits that pretty much carried everything, you know, including some drugs that these days they most probably don't allow people to, you know, to carry anymore. But you had to get permission um, on a radio call to, to get to use them. So the head keeper would have to call in. They'd get a doctor on the on the line and he'd say, all right, do this, do that. And they're all trained in basic first aid and, and you know, giving needles and all that. But you'd have to still get permission off a doctor to, before you could do it. At Sandy Cape, I actually got bitten by a snake and had to get evacuated. So I, was, I actually had a friend out, a friend of ours, uh, one of our relatives come out for the holidays and we were building, a, as kids do, we were building a cubby house and moved some sheets of tin and had a snake come out and bite me on the toe. Uh, we think in the end it was only a brown tree snake, but Fraser Island has death adders. It has black snakes and brown. It has some of the most venomous snakes in the world. So you kind of couldn't take the risk. Lucky it was low tide so they could fly a plane straight in and, and they had phones there. So we could, you know, within half an hour they had a plane out to me and I was on the way back to the mainland. But it kind of threw the, threw the place in a panic a bit. So I suppose my most memorable moments were things like that. Uh, that was, yeah, uh, not, not necessarily the, uh, the most happiest, but. Yeah, not too dissimilar was, from maybe what children would experience here on the mainland, getting yeah. hit by a snake, breaking your arm, rites of passage. Yep, 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 no, exactly. And I suppose from memory, it was really just the times when you had people coming out, you know, like Dick Smith turning up or, you know, you had visitors coming out and you had your relatives come up from down south. So my, my grandparents would quite often come up for a month of time over you know, and visit us away from Melbourne. So those times, I suppose, were the most memorable when you could catch up with all those, um, all your relatives and friends that come for a visit. You had aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews come up and, you know, they're coming up from Melbourne to a place like that. And we're in our element, so you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're king of the castle and showing them around. And that, that was most probably the, the most memorable part. Really, I suppose, no different, as I said, to what happens yeah. on the mainland, just different location. There was just things like that, I suppose, for us were um, the highlights of, of living on the lights and 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 what we did, Cape Capricorn. You know, just the, those things like I said before about the bedding. As part of the standing orders, you had to have a carton of Erigard on the lighthouse at all times because the mosquitoes were so bad. The mosquitoes were so bad you couldn't even go outside some days, and you'd tap on the yeah. screen door and it'd just be black with them. It was it was most probably a bit of a and maybe going back to the highlights. That was most probably one of the highlights because you'd go up in a tower as the sun was setting. And you'd pull the curtains down and, and they all had a, um, I wouldn't say it was a musty, there's a smell about them. It was, you know, most probably the brass soap from polishing the brass and the, you know, the, the method. There was always this uh, almost a comforting sort of smell about them. And you'd go up and you'd pull the curtains down and you'd light the light up and then watch the sun go down. It was, that, that was most probably one of the highlights um, if you got to do that. The swimming pool, you know, the um, I suppose when you're talking about lighthouses, it's a bit of an odd thing because everyone goes, oh, you're surrounded by water. You know, you've got beaches. Well, Booby Island is pretty much called the air's rock of the ocean. When you when you head out to Booby Island, all you see is this rock in the middle of the ocean with a lighthouse and a couple of houses and sheds on it. It is that 
barren and that rugged that all the pipes, so all your um, your sewerage pipes, all your drainage pipes, all your electrical works are all above ground in pipes. They can't, you can't dig it. There's no soil. There's no nothing. It is just solid rock. There was a little beach, um, one little one little patch that we could swim in, but we actually had a swimming pool. So we had most probably the only lighthouse in the in or at least Australia and maybe the world that had a swimming pool. Because of where it was in isolation, you couldn't always swim. So we actually they called it a water reticulation unit to to get approval for it to be built. The rest of the time up there, you know, you had box jellyfish, you had the odd crocodile go past. We had a massive amount of sharks, so you had to be careful of that. The reef was um, wasn't a tropical reef like the rest of the Great Barrier Reef. It was all right to swim on, but again, you had to be careful, you know, because if you scratched yourself up there. You could end up with infections and all sorts of stuff. As part of the standing orders, we had to have betadine on supply at all times. So if you cut yourself, you'd be straight up and get the bottle of betadine and pour it over the cut. So we're standing there one day. We had the the, the big boss up from the Department of Transport, and um, he said to Dad, "What would you really like if there was anything you really like? What would you really like?" And Dad jokingly said, oh, "A swimming pool." And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, we can't swim half a year or three quarters a year. You know, the, the currents are that strong, and and all the issues." Next minute, the ship comes up, and they've got a water reticulation unit for us, and they spent the week there or three or four days there building a swimming pool. So you, you look out our front our front door, and um, on the island, on the front of the island, you know, overlooking towards Thursday Island, the Torres Straits, is a swimming pool with one of the best views around. Um, it was definitely a great life, that's for sure. Wow. Maldives, take a back seat. Lady Elliot Island and Lizard Island, wow. Peter Braid had such a cool childhood just visiting all of these spectacular resorts and hanging out with Dick Smith and, like, possibly other celebrities along the way. What a cool childhood. Yeah, it sounded incredible. The way he described growing up was really obviously such seems like such a different experience to what we had Um, He talked about, you know, going to school by correspondence and a lot of the adults that he was surrounded by only had up to a 10th grade education. But it was really interesting to hear about, I guess, how he engaged with learning and education outside of that traditional mindset. And he talked about even though maybe he struggled with traditional, you know, English and maths, he was really good at doing like research and stuff like that. So I found that really cool and it must colour his experience of his life and how he takes in information and stuff and I just found that really interesting. I think as an adult Peter runs three of his own businesses and I think that freedom and entrepreneurialism really is founded in that free childhood to then be able to go and you know break the norms of society or at least you know needing to go a certain pathway in your professional life and making your own way and making your own business, I think is so important. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really incredible. Lady Elliot Island is like this tiny It looks in insane. Yeah. And I've never heard of it. I had never heard of it before Peter spoke about it. It's like Australia's best yeah. kept secret. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um. I've got some excellent facts about Lady Elliot Island. So as you mentioned, I've, I had never heard of it either, but it is um, within the 
Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and it's considered in the green zone. So it's highly protected because of how biodiverse it is. And so some of the things that it has, uh, it's one of the most important sea turtle habitats in the world. So sea turtles, you know, they go out and then they come back and lay all their eggs on the on the shore there and 80 to 100 eggs per turtle. I think they hatch there during <laughs> turtle migration times. I don't claim to be a turtle expert, but this is just, I know that Lady Elliot Island is somewhere that turtles love. It's a great habitat. It's also just north of Hervey Bay, which is a popular humpback whale resting ground along their migration route, which is lovely. Lady Elliot Island is has also one of the highest seabird diversity of any island within the Great Barrier Reef. It's a haven for over 50 species of tropical seabirds and wading birds and over 100,000 birds nest on Lady Elliot Island during summer breeding season. It's just like this tropical haven of biodiversity and, you know, wildlife and stuff. And I'd, we've never even heard of it. Well, we, we have now, you know. So it's pretty incredible. And it's also this, I'm trying to understand this because I don't really get, uh, you know, nature as much as I should, but it's a K, I think that's how it's pronounced, C-A-Y, which is quite uncommon, apparently, a vegetated shingle K, because these Ks are too narrow to retain fresh water or they're too mobile for vegetation to take hold. So they're just like this (laughs) beautiful, like, like fresh water but has a bit of vegetation in it as well so it's just this you know nature's paradise lady elliot island it sounds like magic and i i suspect because of all of the uh biodiversity that's probably why they've kept it under wraps perhaps because they actually want people going there to check it out before it would disrupt (laughs) the animals happily living there Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, humans are doing a pretty good job at ruining the other parts of the Great Barrier Reef, so maybe best that we don't know about it. (laughs) I'll have to edit that bit out of this podcast to keep it a a secret somehow. But it just just amazes me finding these spots in the world that still exist and that haven't really been touched by humans and imagining that the rest of the world was like that at some point potentially just blows my mind. Yeah, it's actually more depressing to think about than an interesting answer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. But that's okay. We all know it. So, you know, part and parcel of living today is in the facing that's the right. front of human destruction and climate change. Climate change and also no no more manned light, lighthouses. It's just, it's, it's depressing. <laughs> it is a depressing time. <laughs> Yeah, those two those two topics together, equal wasting, of course. <laughs> the idea of living on a beautiful secluded resort sounds great, Caro. You know, would you do it for a year? Surely island life can be both exciting but maybe boring. I honestly can't even conceptualize what it would feel like moving somewhere like this for a year because it's very hard to not take the baggage of how would I make money? What would I do? Would I get bored? Would it be great? Would I go insane? Um, So I think in theory, me being who I am now and my personality, I think I would enjoy it a lot for maybe a month 
I think a year I'd probably struggle. I think I would, I think I'd want to do something else. And I guess that's more of a reflection of me than the place because there's not many other places more idyllic than Lady Elliot Island. And I don't know, like, what would I do for food? What would, who would I hang out with? You know, as a very, as a very social person, if I, if I had, you know, 20 of my friends come and hang out on Lady Elliot Island for a year, sign me up. I'm, I'm super into that. But, um, otherwise, yeah, I don't think, I don't think I'm cut out for it, unfortunately. What about you, Mandy? Well, the idea of inviting your mates over to Lady Elliot, Lady Elliot Island, it'd almost be like having a commune on the uh, a commune <laughs> on the island. I'm also imagining kind of like survivor style island living, <laughs> where you're yeah. all marooned there doing challenges. Maybe a survivor should host a, host a season there. But mm. I'm actually like, what if I had if if we, if we weren't, you know marooned there as you know from a ship or something but we actually could take stuff with us probably take up like snorkeling or diving given oh for all of sure. the animals that you mentioned or like sailing just like extreme water sports for a little bit maybe maybe write another podcast who knows <laughs> yeah it sounds pretty good you know wake up have your morning coffee go swim with the turtles maybe a bit of light reading on the sand and then maybe a bit of you know you know swimming out there just a bit of of bird watching sounds pretty good for 365 365 days in a year but um I think I'd get really sunburned and probably very <laughs> existential <laughs> yes I think island living is perhaps in the tropics is perhaps not for not for all of the uh fair-skinned persons out there right. in the world <laughs> that's right that's right Assuming basic food and clothes were provided in a simple lighthouse setup, what three essential items, or not even essential, what three items would you bring for a one-year stint? Just to preface, this would be incredibly hard for me and I'd probably find it an incredibly challenging experience mentally and physically. So, But when I think about this, assuming... Yes, as you mentioned, that I'd be I'd be able to survive this, and I'm not just thinking about surviving 24 seven. I'd probably bring some sort of ball, like an exercise implement, something to keep me entertained, coordinated, um, that sort of thing. And then I was thinking something creative, so maybe you know, string or wool or rope to be able to make things with, um, or potentially even wood or. You know, I need like a little bit of a hobby, you know, to like be able to keep, project. right, a craft project for my one year stint. I haven't really thought too much about what I'd make, probably something useful, hopefully like a basket or something. I'm not even sure. And then maybe again, something, I'm, I'm just thinking about keeping myself entertained here because I'm assuming I have no friends or anything to do except for look <laughs> at the incredible scenery. Um, and maybe some sort of musical instrument, like, you know, bringing a guitar or something to be able to, to be able to work on something while I'm there. I'm sure there's things that would be a lot more practical, but <laughs> hobbies of the creative, athletic and musical type would probably serve me best in that situation. What would I bring? I was thinking about this. I was thinking, okay, I would love to document my time there. So I reckon I'd bring like mm. a camera. That'd be one. That makes way more sense than what I chose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 
that's a great call. A camera. That is a really a great call. Yes. Sorry. Continue, Mandy. But assuming no internet, you know, I'd bring like a laptop or a notebook or something again to, mm. you know, in writing document my time there. Yes. And then maybe maybe just a book. Yeah. Just read the same book over and over again over the course of the year, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's about it. Yep. You're an educator by training. What do you think about the whole learning outside the classroom experience, you know, freeing the kids from their desk? Mandy, I think if you <laughs> ask most educators what they thought about learning outside the classroom experience, I think many people would have a lot to say. And I think that the ways classrooms are now are not necessarily the best. So I think students would froth an experience like being on an island and getting to just look at nature and be surrounded by incredible flora and fauna. So it can it only sounds great and we mentioned it um earlier about our childhood and how much we associate that with just playing and being outside and not even necessarily doing anything but in places like this the world's your oyster right so if you can incorporate that into learning as much as possible and not even you learn so much by being in those environments anyway that are not you know academic or necessarily book smart it's not really about maths but it's more just about like paying attention and I think that that's only that can only be a positive thing so absolutely (laughs) sounds like an incredible experience and I would love to have had more of that in my childhood you're totally right you know taking the opportunity to reflect on my primary secondary and tertiary education and what bits of it were actually useful in adult life and navigating the world it often wasn't the goals that were set for us in high school like the entire dedication to getting a particular score or, you know, acing a particular test. It's not necessarily a reflection of life success. It's just a reflection of that particular examination pathway success. And I think totally agree with your observations and probably the thoughts of many educators out there that there is a long way to go in terms of building an education system that actually supports the well-being and ability of kids to grow and be the best persons they can be in the future it sounds like that might be for a whole nother podcast series I think Gary I think you're right Mandy (laughs) a lot to unpack there (laughs) also I don't think I would know what Dick Smith looks like if I saw him (laughs) waving at me from an island I don't think I'd know what it looked like so it's pretty impressive that (laughs) he had that interaction (laughs) And that Dick Smith was just, and probably many other, you know, rich, loaded Australians are just going on helicopter tours around the coast. Yeah, just hanging out in the Queensland Lighthouse vibe. Scenic joy riding. Yeah, we we (laughs) might go for, you know, a drive down to the Woolies or something, drive around to the beach, they hop in their helicopter. (laughs) Yeah, why not? If you got it, want it. (laughs) Do Do you know much about Dick Smith just generally? No, I do not know much about Dick Smith. My memories of Dick Smith are just going to their stores in person and trying to buy PlayStation 2 games, and that's all my memories of it. So I didn't even know, I hadn't even thought about Dick Smith until until it was mentioned in this episode. And, yeah, seeing that it's owned by Kogan, I guess it makes sense. So that's sort of the theme of this, you know, moving towards the internet fast, have it now. Yeah, right. And so the 
for perhaps the younger listeners amongst us who are wondering why we are frothing over Dick Smith. Dick Smith was, you know, the tech electronics icon, as you say, Caro, had shops in every shopping centre selling electronics. But unfortunately, she couldn't contend against the might of Kogan and online shopping and unfortunately had been taken over by Kogan. I mean, we can't feel too bad about Dick Smith. If he's able to helicopter onto an island in the Great Barrier Reef, he's probably doing all right. I'm paying, playing the world's smallest violin for Dick Smith over here. <laughs> the proceeds of his former heyday. Not, not a bad gig. That's all right. Thank you, firstly, to Peter Braid for sharing his experience at Queensland Lighthouses. Thank you, of course, to Caroline Barr, my amazing co-host. Up next is an interview with Joe Pidges, historian, covering New South Wales life under the lights. Until then, stick around for an additional quip from Peter Braid about a day in the life of a keeper. And finally, the origin story of the goats that tyrannised Byron Bay with Michelle Seeger. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Can you describe a day in the life of someone living at a lighthouse? You know, you wake up, what's the first thing you do? What are the things you need to get done for the day? Yep. So I suppose you need to break it down to two different styles of lighthouses. So there was the kerosene lights, which were the oldest style lights. So Pine Islet, um, Lady Elliot, I think Dent. There wasn't too many by the time we were there, but they were the main three. We lived on Pine Island and Lady Elliot. They were in North Reef was also um, kerosene. Um, so generally on those lights, you'd have um, three families on the on the station and the keepers would do a four-hour shift. So they had to man the light all night. You couldn't just turn on and, and walk away. So they'd take turns on um, a four-hour. If it was a three-man station, they'd do a four-hour shift or if it was a two-man station like Lady Elliot, they'd do a six-hour shift. Um, the guys would light up that night. So um, when you go up to light up the lighthouse, you'd see not so much these days, they don't have them, but in the old days they all had curtains hanging up around the lamp during the day because of the magnification of the lens and the sun shining through. If that lens hit a certain spot long enough, it could actually start bushfires. So they used to put curtains up. So you'd, you'd go up, take the curtains down. Um, it was a kerosene light. You had to pressurise the, the kerosene and it had like a wick in it, like your old gas um, camping lights. And you'd have to pressurise that and, and light it up. And the light was actually turned by a, um, a pendulum running down the middle of the tower. And you'd have to wind that up. And depending on the weight, the speed, how many revolutions it did, um, you'd have to wind that up every 40 minutes, half an hour, depending on um, how quickly it, it went down. So that guy would have to go up, pressurise it, turn that and he'd do that for his four-hour shift or his six-hour shift and the next guy had come in until six o'clock in the morning then he'd go off finish his weather report go off and have a couple of hours sleep or if it was a um, three-man station he'd go off and sleep until you know 10 o'clock or something like that and then they'd catch up normally by nine o'clock they, they'd meet up and work out what jobs they needed to do whether it was as much mundane as polishing the brass in the lighthouse. There was a lot of brass, um, stuff like that, that was always meant to be kept polished. Cleaning the lens, which was a, you know, that was a pretty important part. Um, general maintenance of the motors, you know, doing an oil change or cleaning or, or doing some of that. Mowing lawns, 
there was always something to do, you know, a bit of painting because the rust from the, the salt air, there's always a bit of painting to be done. Generally, that would happen until, yeah, they, they never work really hard. It'd be, you know, 10 o'clock smoko time, uh, do a bit more work till, till lunchtime, have some lunch, and then they'd come back again and they'd work from, you know, like 1 o'clock till 3 o'clock and, and that'd be your day. In between that, you do your weather reports. And then what happened, that shift would rotate. So um, over the week, the, the guy that was on uh, first up in the morning, he'd switch to the, the first shift of the night and then they'd, they'd rotate through. And then each keeper would have one day off on the weekend. So you'd have your day off where you didn't have to do anything. And then the other keeper would look after the weather reports um, and then um, swap over each week. And that's well, that kind of indicated the change of the shift. If it was an electric light like um, Sandy Cape, Cape Capricorn, all those, it was really just a case of going up, taking the curtains down, switching the light on, setting the alarms, and that was it. You'd you know, you'd all go to bed, you know, go do whatever, watch TV, go to bed, and if there was an issue with the light, the alarms would ring in that um, wake in every house, and that would wake you up to go sort out the issue. The only thing that you had to do then was do your weather report. So generally the guy that, um, that lit up did the weather report till um, nine or midnight and then the other lighthouse keeper do the three o'clock, six o'clock and then he'd get to sleep in till nine o'clock and, and then start all over again. And again, it was just more maintenance than anything. Yeah, so the goats actually, because they bred, they just bred and just went absolutely crazy through Byron and they became a nuisance over the years and I think they shot last one not that long ago um, when I went up there um, probably 15 years ago they had a Beacons by the Sea exhibition um, which I opened with the mayor of Byron Bay which at the time her name was Jan and um, I got interviewed by George Negus I think it was on the front page of all the papers and in the local news and um, they ended up saying that, that they're still trying to get that one um, aloof goat that they couldn't get. So I believe they finally sadly did because they were just um, terrorising the land basically, just ripping it up. So they, they did it in the end become a nuisance, but at the time that it wasn't intended to do that. <laughs> so your, your family or rather your, your grandmother's um, cow's milk allergy was the, the source and the genesis of the goat infestation yeah, at Byron? Exactly, just a natural occurring thing that probably anyone in farming industry would have, you know, on, on a normal, you know, farm would have probably been fine. But because the goats love climbing and um, they just basically started to erode all of the lands around because they were just so, there was just so many, they just loved to breed, unfortunately. <laughs> they loved to breed. And <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what time period was your family at Cape Byron? Um, 1901, um, William Warren was there, and I can't, I actually don't know how old, what year my nana was born. I could probably work it out. But she was the youngest of the five. Oh, wow. So William Warren was out there, did you say, from 1901? Yes. And then by the time your nana grew up, you know, it would have been a decade or so later. So for about the last 110 years, they've been hunting down your nana's goats. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> now that you put it like that, it's, it's quite surreal. Yeah, wow. Light. House. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> I've been a long time listener. I really love your work. <laughs> <laughs>